This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court, Bob. And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Uh, today, Craig, we're going to talk uh, about a very timely topic. We've, we've uh, hit on this before, and that's e-discovery. We've, we've talked about this a little bit uh, in programs in 2006, but there's uh, quite a bit happening, and we're going to catch up today with some great guests. Well, there have been some big companies that have found themselves being investigated by authorities, and many of them are discovering they're losing the battle on how they handle their emails and important corporate documents. And, of course, as of December 1st, uh, there were uh, amendments took effect to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure that uh, specifically address issues of e-discovery. There's also a, a trend among businesses to create much more detailed inventories of digital information uh, so that when they're uh, hit with a lawsuit, they can uh, uh, preserve and protect evidence and avoid spoliation, spoliation charges. Uh, so today we'll be discussing some of these recent issues that uh, 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 speak to companies and law firms. We'll talk about the, the power of e-discovery, the, 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 the uh, world of uh, legal technology, and uh, the new federal rules of civil procedure. Well, Bob, today we first we'd like to welcome attorney Thomas Barnett. Tom is special counsel at Sullivan and Cromwell's litigation group. His practice focuses on implementing and executing best practices in data discovery and regulatory compliance. Mr. Barnett is a co-author and a member of the editorial board of the Sedona Conference, which has published influential white papers on discovery and electronic data management. Mr. Barnett has advised clients and served as an electronic discovery expert in some of the nation's largest civil, regulatory, and criminal matters in the financial services, banking, energy, pharmaceutical, telecommunications, automobile manufacturing, and tobacco industries. Prior to joining Sullivan, Mr. Barnett was the senior executive in charge of EDD operations for the largest business process outsourcing company in Asia, in addition to serving as that company's general counsel. Welcome to the show, Tom. Uh, Welcome. Good to be here. We'd also like to welcome back to Coast to Coast, Michelle C.S. Lang. Uh, Michelle is a staff attorney in the Electronic Evidence Services Group at Kroll on Track, Incorporated. Michelle tracks the evolving common and statutory law in the areas of electronic discovery and computer forensics. She also helps practicing attorneys integrate electronic discovery into their case strategies. Michelle has published numerous articles and speaks regularly on the topics of electronic discovery, computer forensics, and technology's role in the law. Uh, most notably, her articles have appeared in the National Law Journal, New York Law Journal, Corporate Counsel Magazine, among others, as well as on Law.com. Welcome back to the program, Michelle. It's nice to be back with you guys. Thanks. And finally today, we'd also like to welcome Craig Ball to the show. Craig is a prolific contributor to continuing legal and professional education programs throughout the United States. He's delivered over 400 presentations and papers. Craig's articles on forensic technology and e-discovery frequently appear in the national media, including the ABA, the ATLA, and the American Lawyer Media print and online publications. He also writes a monthly column on computer forensic and electronic discovery for law technology news called Ball in Your Court. 
Nat received the 2006 Silver Medal recognition from the American Society of Business Publication Editors as both the Best Feature Series and the Best Contributed Column. The presentation, Craig Ball on PowerPoint, is consistently the top-rated educational program at the ABA Tech Show. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you, gentlemen. A big howdy from Texas. And a cold one at that. Indeed. Well, Tom, let's start with you. What's going on uh, lately in the world of e-discovery? What do you see as the major issues that companies and law firms are now facing? Well, I think uh, in some way they're facing the same issues they've faced for a while, but there's a lot more focus on it. With uh, You mentioned the advent of the amendments to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, a lot of high-profile cases in which um, companies have faced sanctions and, and a lot of scrutiny. So I think uh, the biggest change that I've noticed uh, recently is just much more focus on it and a lot more widespread uh, concern and, and talking about it than it happened in the past. Michelle, how about you? What do you see uh, as some of the, the, the key issues right now that you and your clients are, are uh, focusing on in e-discovery? I think the number one issue that we're still dealing with and, and the clients that I work with at Kroll are still working with is still dealing with the sheer volume of emails, word processing documents, spreadsheets, databases, audio files now, and the like. Technology has greatly improved our business life, but it really does complicate legal discovery, and lawyers are turning to technology to solve the problems that technology has created. Well, Craig, how would you enlighten us? Well, a couple of things that, that obviously Michelle's hit on the most important challenge to be discovery, and that's the sheer volume. I'm seeing that a lot of the uh, clients that I deal with, as well as the people who come to my presentations and, and read my articles, um, are, are simply not appreciating just how many sources of electronically stored information exist, and I'm frustrated by the lack of a common language, a common set of standards. Two very intelligent lawyers can be talking about the same thing and really imagining entirely different outcomes based on what they're saying. And I guess the final frustration that I see is that the challenge is, is the lack of, of desktop tools and, and other hardware and software solutions that will enable lawyers to get back in touch with the evidence without having to always work through an intermediary. Craig, can you give us a couple examples of how lawyers are using the same words to mean different things? Well, one simple one is, is copy. Uh, when we spoke about paper discovery, we understood what copy meant. We didn't have to say, well, you have to copy out to the margins and you have to turn it over and copy the back side. But when you start speaking about native electronic data, the issues of whether you capture metadata, system metadata, embedded metadata, uh, what you're allowed to change in the process of copying, whether it's going to be forensically sound or not, these are important issues many times in electronic discovery, and lawyers will simply use terms like copying that may mean one thing to one, uh, block and copy, move and drag and drop type harvest, but may mean a very different thing or may need to mean a very different thing in another context. That's a great point, Craig. You know, to build on that, um, I see so many discovery requests or even orders from judges, preservation orders um, and the like from judges that say, you know, you have please produce or, or please preserve all, and then they go into word processing documents and emails, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and all metadata. And, and I do a lot of, of legal education events for lawyers and litigation support folks, and, and in these, these sessions I talk a lot about we need to get past saying and all metadata. That really doesn't help us any um, because 
one lawyer could to metadata metadata could mean every single field um, associated with that with a single file type and to another lawyer it could just mean the most salient metadata fields you know the two from bcc cc date subject you know maybe they're just looking for those on an email but um, that, that can mean so many different things and if lawyers aren't um, upfront communicating um, on the same page it really gets into a lot of hot water down the road well, well, isn't this one of the purposes of the new federal rules, I mean, to bring some commonality of, of procedure and language to this process, at least in the federal courts? Uh, absolutely. And even if, if the rules themselves have been written intentionally, broadly, in order to, to give them some staying power as technology moves forward, but the, they are necessarily forcing a focus on what do we mean by electronically stored information, what does it consist of, and as Michelle very wisely points out, uh, metadata can be very important, is in certain kinds of metadata, is important in virtually every case just to manage and search information, but lawyers don't want to learn about it. And, then, and as a consequence, they are often saying, give me all the metadata with no real appreciation of what that means or the burdens that that imposes. I think another goal of the rules, in addition to all the things that have been said, is kind of addressing the, the forest and the trees problem. Um, in addition to getting into all the details as we're talking about, which is a complex issue, there's also the, the, the problem that I think large organizations face, which is electronic discovery or regulatory compliance becoming uh, sort of an end in itself with, with that, and losing sight of the fact that the point of this is to get at information that is enlightening about the, the specific matter that you're dealing with. So trying to prevent these kind of endeavors from becoming huge, expensive sideshows that, that don't even get to the point of getting at the information. Sometimes these things become so large and complex that you forget that there's, like, there's a case involved with issues and, and data that you need. Well, Tom, I, I frequently heard people say that even the most complex cases frequently come down to 20 documents and that all of the uh, truckloads worth of other documents that are there are really mostly irrelevant. How can lawyers now find those 20 documents, if in fact that is the, the limit on uh, the relevant documents in a case, amongst the, the trees that are in the forest? Well, there's a lot of tools out there that are, as, just as the types of electronic data and the tools that people are using to conduct their business uh, increase, as Michelle said, there's also more and more tools that, that allow uh, uh, different ways of looking and sorting at the data, searching it by concepts and not just keywords and so on. There's all sorts of tools available um, that I think as time goes on uh, will, will become more prevalent and allow you to, to cut through and weed out a lot of stuff because there's a huge amount of chaff in looking for the wheat, and that, that's sort of where the sideshow can, can come in. To give an example, um, most of the clients that I work with here at Kroll that, that use um, our service offering for electronic discovery processing typically see about a 75% reduction in data um, using keyword searching and file identification and deduplication. You can't imagine how valuable deduplication technology can be when there are, um, when it's so easy today to create duplicates of email and, and documents alike. And, and this reduction is really helpful both for um, for their clients and their end, and the end client because um, because all the information is uh, that's collected at the onset of discovery is not really relevant relevant to the case obviously but, but, but the sideshow here exists because this is in fact so complicated to do at least for some companies I mean it, the larger the company the more complicated I suppose 
you know, I mean, the reason companies such as Kroll exist is that this, this, the nature of electronic discovery is so much different than, than traditional forms of paper discovery. Uh, so how, how do companies, you know, what should companies, what should in-house counsel be doing in particular and what should lawyers be doing to, to keep this from being a sideshow? How should they be uh, managing this in a way that it doesn't get out of control? I have a, a, an answer to that, but it's, it's not medicine that anybody wants to take, and that is they have to impose electronic records management. They have to bring to the process many of the same kind of, of techniques that we took for granted in dealing with paper. And that starts with uh, having data taxonomies, filing systems for unstructured electronic data that you must use before you can do something as simply as sending an email. Now, that's not medicine, as I say, that anybody wants to swallow. And a lot of people push back and say, our people aren't willing to characterize an email as personal or business-related, or if it's business-related, to file it with respect to a case or a matter or a business unit. They're not going to take that slowdown. And, and my feeling about it is if you can force people to enter a code to make a photocopy, you can force them to do something that has a lot more gravity ultimately in terms of what impact it has on your company. I, I think this raises a really interesting point. And in one way I agree with Craig, and one way I don't. I, I think that um, one of the all, sort of overarching goals of the rules is to, to have companies un better understand their data, where it is, how to get it, and to manage it. And I think that's very important. I also think in the flip side of that is to more focus the, the kind of document requests that are made so it's not just asking for everything. I think those are both good goals. I, I differ in the sense that I think records management is something that, that companies have traditionally applied to things that they describe as records, things that they need to keep for some kind of business reason, a legal obligation, or regulatory obligation. Not every single piece of data that's floating through the corporation at any given time. And I, I think that having to apply sort of a taxonomy or records management to all the data flowing around that isn't necessarily a business record or at that moment isn't subject to a legal hold, I think is excessive. Well, Tom, I, I agree with you. And, and um, but only, the only problem that I have with, with that is that we do need to force that distinction early on because right now we're just saving everything. And so we can either force that distinction at the time the information is exchanged when people know what it is, or we can keep it all in this gigantic box and then have lawyers come in and try to sort it out a couple of years after the fact. Yeah, I agree that it's a big problem. I, I think that how to approach it is, is challenging, and there's technology, and there's a lot of debate about it, but I agree with you in identifying that as a problem. Michelle, you, did you want to add something? I was just going to wrap it up. I was going to just kind of say that it, that it certainly rings clear that, that you know, these two gentlemen both are very knowledgeable in this area and um, and have disagreements on what the best practices are and what the best approach is. It just um, goes to show that e-discovery is utterly complex, and the companies that are getting into trouble are choosing to go it alone. Instead, the, the companies really need to circle their wagons and seek both legal and technical help and, and get best practices in place, whatever they may be, for their company and for their situation. Um, you know, companies that have chosen that path um, are not finding themselves on the cover of the New York Times. Tom, your practice focuses in part on, on helping to implement best practices. Are, are your clients uh, companies or are your clients lawyers involved in litigation? Where, where are you, who are you working with to do yeah, this? I work for a law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell, so our clients are, are typically corporations involved in either litigation or regulatory uh, matters. 
and so we we advise them on you know best practices in, in managing their electronic data and complying with their their legal and regulatory obligations. And is this? Uh, do you come into this into the picture before they're involved in litigation or when they become involved in litigation? Uh, I guess I guess it could be both. It depends on the situation. Again, as more focus is put on these uh, kinds of issues. Uh, Corporations that are forward-looking are trying to address these things in advance, and I think uh, any organization that prepares for this before the onset of litigation is in better shape. You don't want to have to figure out all this stuff after you've been sued. So what I'm, we're seeing more and more is companies are taking a proactive approach and, and coming up with ways of dealing with this, and I think the, the new federal rules have uh, certainly focused attention on it, some of the high-profile cases. And so we're seeing more companies trying to come up with standard procedures and protocols uh, along the lines that Craig's talking and other ways of addressing these issues in, in the sense that they don't want to have to figure out how to manage their data after they get a subpoena. They want to have thought about it before. Tom, what are you identifying as best practices for the companies that you're advising? You know, it's, it's, uh, it, I don't think there's any one answer to that because there's so many different areas. We've touched on some of them uh, you know, Craig mentioned collecting, how you collect the data without changing it, how you preserve it, how you review it and produce it. There's so many different areas that I think it's, it really depends on what area we're talking about. And, and also I think it depends on the company. Different companies have vastly different regulatory requirements, what they have to save, what they don't need to save. So it's pretty hard to generalize, although I, I would say that keeping on top of uh, technological changes and, and understanding where your data is and how to get it and how to preserve it if you need to, are sort of the key, but it's really hard to, to sum it up in a word or two. Companies that do go through this kind of um, get-your-house-in-order exercise really will see um, that that resonates well with when they have to prove to a judge or to a government investigator that they have everything in its place and, and that they... Um, and that they've used best practices to collect the data, review the data, and produce the data, and that they're not hiding anything. They haven't had any spoliation issues. They haven't tried to delete delete very important information or claim that they can't find information. Um, that's really going to resonate at the end of the day with the judge or the investigator. Um, the, that you know, look at we've we've gone to these approach these approaches, um, and we've we've taken this this task, and we're gonna we're gonna try and do this in a good faith perspective. And, and as long as you exercise good faith, you're protected under the federal rules, as, as I understand it. There, there is this sort of safe harbor under the rules that, uh, you know, if there's a, a technical glitch or, or something like that by which you, you lose data, uh, uh, you're not responsible for that. Um, do I have that right? Is there, there is a safe harbor under the rules. How does it protect companies? I've heard it said that the safe harbor is neither safe nor a harbor. So I think that's still... Uh It'll be interesting to see how that's interpreted. I think it says you don't have to produce data, uh, but there's still an obligation to preserve data if it's even if you deem it inaccessible. I, I think there's a lot of uh, you know water still to go under the bridge to decide how those things are interpreted. Um, there is an attempt at a safe harbor. I think that if the conduct if the conduct is egregious enough, even if it's unintentional spoliation, if it's egregious enough. Um, the courts can still use their inherent authority to issue sanctions. Because, of course, you've, you've got to show that you did all that you should reasonably have done in order to head off that problem. You can't just sit around waiting for that train to arrive. And so that good faith that is an essential element of the so-called safe harbor, which as Tom quite properly points out, isn't safe and isn't a harbor. Uh, some may just consider it a, a lighthouse, if you will, 
but the, the essential element of good faith has got to be there, and that's going to mean that you acted promptly, diligently, using good practices or best practices to preserve the information and to prevent it from being lost. Then, if everything goes south, because everything from a system self-destructs to, you know, tragically, a, an airliner hits a major building, then there will be a, a, a true protection against sanctions. No one in the, tw in the 21st century, no one, has yet been sanctioned for a diligent and good faith effort that has gone awry in electronic discovery. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and to add a little bit to the maybe ambiguity of the rules, in the committee notes it actually says that uh, good faith may require suspension of routine business operations. So, uh, you know, kind of give us and take us away. There are some reports out there that uh, it's not really the tech people in the company that are the problem, that it's the employees who are forwarding uh, corporate emails to personal accounts. Any reaction to that? It's a, it's a real problem, and it's it's not just the, the problem that they speak to of people are are trying to send critical information off to their homes so that they can work on it uh, after hours at various VPNs and other access to the systems are being opened up. That is true. The systems themselves are designed to create multiple iterations of information all over the place. And, and I don't want to speak too long, but in a case I just looked at this week, in analyzing their machines, these were just routine corporate machines. Well, we had OST files or synchronization files for Microsoft Exchange Server and PST files, local post office files, and then archive PST files, and then all of the uh, pieces of the Internet cache and the temporary Internet files. All of these are accessible forms of information. So under the rules, probably fair game for discovery, and yet many different iterations, none, none of which reflect the same information that is also on the main server. And in situations like the ones that Craig is describing, you know, this is where computer forensics and e-discovery technology can really lend a helping hand. I think, you know, I know at Kroll I work with clients every day that are trying to build this timeline or trying to put together the, the facts of what happened on these machines, on these computers, um, and figure out how a person or a group of persons could have intentionally or intentionally compromised important data or accessed certain data or, or whatever the, the question at the end of the day is. But, but this is really where the technology can assist with in situations like this where um, employees are um, maybe nefariously um, sending um, email to web-based systems. Well, stay with us. We're going to take a break, and we will continue our discussion of electronic discovery uh, after these words. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. 
Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for joining us. We're joined by our guest today, uh, Tom Barnett, who's special counsel for Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, focusing on best practices in electronic discovery matters. Michelle C.S. Lang, staff attorney for Electronic Evidence Services Group at Kroll on Track. And Craig Ball, uh, a a lawyer and uh, electronic discovery consultant and uh, certified computer forensic examiner and uh, columnist and multi-talented individual. Uh, Thanks for joining with us today. Tom, early in the program, you identified a few, or at least mentioned, uh, a few tools that uh, apparently you're using to uh, work with e-discovery. And although we're not here to plug a particular program, would you like to identify the tools that you were talking about? Sure. I think what we were talking about, and there's all kinds of different tools uh, for different aspects, I was talking about some of the new search technologies that are available. And, you know, rather than giving specific product names, I can talk about the kind of class which uh, is known as either context searching or latent semantic indexing, other kinds of names like that, which is a a fancy way of saying it it organizes the data based on what's in it rather than uh, trying to think of some keywords or search terms in advance. And sometimes it's useful. All these tools are useful to the extent you understand them and you use them in the right context. So if you don't have a, a really clear idea of what might be in a large data set, uh, therefore, not able to come up with uh, you know a, a very targeted uh, set of search terms or keywords. These tools are useful in finding out what's in the data and, and finding out terms for things that you might not have thought of. So those are those are quite useful in certain cases. Craig, what's the uh, where does a company begin? What's what what is it a company needs to be looking at right away in terms of uh, avoiding future problems uh, regarding electronic discovery? Well, I, I think that the answer there is, first, you've got to have a, an up-to-date sense of what do we have and where do we have it. You know, there are network maps floating around every IT room I've ever visited, and most of them are six months to a year out of date. But you really have to have that, that in inventory of, of the information, and then you need to have some insight into how the organization uses its information. Where does the stuff that matter lie? How do we handle people who are on the road? What kind of, of, of backup procedures do we have in place? What's our retention on data, and do we really enforce that? 
because one of the impacts of the rules that I think we're going to see have that impact early on is that we're going to have lawyers meeting and conferring virtually within weeks of the time that the case is filed, and the courts are expecting them to have much of this information at the ready and be able to reach some key preliminary decisions about preservation and forms of production. I think I'd, I'd add to that. I, I agree with everything Craig said, and I would add to that that some that two two things. One is that the act of preserving data is sometimes challenging, depending on the kind of applications and systems that a company uses. And a lot of times, the default in a company will be that data will be overwritten or deleted. So companies need to really have a handle on how to stop that from happening so they can preserve, because taking no action can sometimes result in losing data. The other thing I'd say is documenting efforts and processes. If you're uh, complying with a discovery request or a regulatory subpoena, writing down, thinking through your processes and documenting some so, so you can explain them to a court or regulator is very important in establishing the reasonableness of your efforts. And all of this requires that both the IT folks and the legal teams come together to, to take inventory of their systems or to document those processes. And, and, you know, lawyers are from Venus and IT folks are from Mars. And, and so it's sometimes difficult for each other to understand each other's language. And, and especially with the new rules in place and, and the new requirements with the meet and confer, um, these two groups are going to have to work together seamlessly like never before to make, to make both what Craig and Tom were talking about happen. I'd like to underscore one point that Tom made, and that is the issue of interrupting the routine destruction or overriding of information. One of the great challenges to the legal profession is going to be helping to make the courageous calls of not to override, or rather to overwrite certain things, of allowing certain processes to be ongoing. Because as a practical matter, in large organizations, certainly, you simply can't say, okay, we're not going to rotate our backup system tapes anymore. So we're going to have to be making qualitative judgments very quickly, sometimes with little information that will be defensible down the line of we're going to pull this set, but we're going to keep everything else going, or we're just going to focus on this business unit or these users and custodians. And that's where I think the lawyering skill is going to be most important. Well, we've reached the end of our program, so it's time for us now to get some final thoughts from you and also get your contact information. So, Michelle, let's start with you and have you kind of wrap up today's discussion briefly and, and then give your contact information to our listeners. Sure. I think that, you know, in conclusion, e-discovery is the great equalizer. Any organization, whether five employees or 5,000 employees or 500,000 employees, if you use computers in the course of transacting business, your organization could be at risk for needing to preserve and produce electronic evidence, and, and especially with the new rules in place. And so the number one thing that organizations can do is to get edu educated, you know, attend a conference. There's a great number of them now. Talk to service providers to understand the technology. And most of all, see this as an opportunity to help your company or your client mitigate the risks associated with electronically stored information. Um, my contact information, I work for Kroll on Track. We can be reached online at krollontrack.com. Uh, that's K-R-O-L-L-O-N-T-R-A-C-K. Or I can be reached at mlang, L-A-N-G-E, at krollontrack.com. Tom? Uh, I, I think I agree with everything Michelle said. I think the key to dealing with this uh, rapidly changing and challenging and risky environment 
is to take proactive uh, approaches. Don't wait till emergency strikes to try to figure out what to do. Start thinking about these things in advance. Uh, learn about your systems, understand them, document them, and have a plan in pl place for how you're going to respond to discovery or regulatory requests. Uh, don't leave it to the last moment and, and take the time and effort to do it in advance. Um, I can be reached at Barnett, B-A-R-N-E-T-T-T, -T -T, at com, S-U-L-L-C-R-O-M.com. Craig Ball, you get the last word. Thank you. But uh, like my predecessors, I just want to amplify that what they said is probably the most important thing. So whatever I say now truly is it's tertiary. I think one thing we have to anticipate is that a change in the adversarial process where the electronic discovery is concerned. Transparency will be important and cooperation important as never before. The courts aren't going to put up with a whole lot of posturing where this very volatile and fragile electronic information is concerned. And I think most of us are going to come around pretty quickly to understanding that in Titan versus Titan litigation, it's a situation of mutually assured destruction. And in David versus Goliath uh, situations, even there it can be mutually assured destruction because everyone uses computers nowadays and all of us are vulnerable to spoliation and sanctions and lack of cooperation. Uh, anyone who needs to contact me, uh, my website is craigball dot com, C R A I G B A L L dot com, and my email is Craig at ball dot net. Well, that brings us to the end of another uh, edition of Coast to Coast. We'd like to thank our guests for joining us and participating in today's uh, program. And Craig, look forward to speaking to you again next week. We will, and we'll make sure that we don't destroy this program either, Bob. Craig Ball, uh, talk to you again next week too. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.